Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Welcome back, Greg Rodden, for part three of this residency, first year internship, and after podcast. We're really covering the nitty gritty of everything you need to know about and work through with your residency from like fourth year, what you got to do to plan. That was in part one, in case the audience hasn't gone back and listened to that one yet. Part two, we really covered like, what is it like to be an intern on the first day and entering the hospital and how do you make these communications, these connections, these bonds with the other staff, not just the physician staff, but all the staff in the hospital. How do you study for all this material too? So that was all in part two. Now in part three, we have you back for some of the extracurricular aspects, the things that might not be mentioned so much in medical school, for instance. And that's how do you manage your extra life outside of the hospital and your finances and the other things that are just constantly going on. So I'm just really happy to have you back for a third episode, Greg. Thanks for having me back, man. I really appreciate it. All right. So I'm going to start off with this one. And I know you have a particular view on it because you're married. So you've been doing this as sort of a quote unquote family unit. But I suppose for work-life balance, there are going to be some important differences if you're going into residency solo versus having a wife or a family even. A lot of physicians start with kids already. What would you suggest for those kinds of situations and like, how have you managed it so far? So, you know, to be honest, I don't know if I can really speak with much authority about what a single person should do, what a person with a family should do. I don't even know if I can speak with authority about what a married person should do. I think my wife still likes me, but <laughs> so that's a good sign, right? Yeah, she's still with you, right? So <laughs> I really only have like a simple piece of advice, and that is just carve a time out each week that is solely dedicated to your family. So for me and my wife, that is going on our date night every week. That is extremely important to us. In the time of COVID, we've also been making more dinners together, and which is a time-tested to improve your relationship, assuming that you're like talking and not just like sitting there on your phones together. No judgment, no judgment if that's what you do. Um, but, you know, intentional time spent together, engaging one another, not looking at a screen is, is probably the best way to go there. As far as residents who have kids, I mean, I have a few co-residents who have kids, and I think that from an outsider's perspective, they're doing a great job. You know, they kind of have to say no to doing a lot of the stuff like with the other co-residents, you know, who don't have that additional responsibility that they're taking care of. You know, they take up every free moment that they can to spend with their families. and. For the single person, I don't know. I've been married for so long. I don't remember what it's like to be single. So I don't have much good advice there. <laughs> right, fair enough. I'll speak to that point. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are still going to be dating during this period of time. So I think the same advice really holds. If you're trying to build that bond, build that relationship, you still have to set aside time for your personal and social life. 
even if it's not with a significant other, just even keeping tabs with your friends and family is something that's very beneficial. Keep that social support because you're probably going to need it later on. And it's just the good thing to do. So if you can make sure to manage your time properly and set aside time for social events, we'll say, whether that be calling your parents up on the phone or setting up a date night or just hanging out with friends that you haven't seen in a while, make sure not to neglect those because that seems like it's something that a lot of students do and they feel like they have to in early residence because they're so busy and they end up regretting it later from a lot of the physicians I've spoken to in the past anyway. That is something else that I do every week is I talk to my parents pretty much every Sunday in the afternoon, even if it's just for like 10 minutes, you know, or whatever, just making sure that we're staying in contact and not falling out of touch, you know. Something else that I just thought about was my wife and I put together like a little Excel spreadsheet that we call plan spontaneity. I think we got this concept from like a podcast or something, but it was like, you know, whenever you're bored and don't know what to do, like look on this spreadsheet of like a list of things that you think you might want to do one day if you have like the afternoon off or just have a couple of hours together. So like, for example, one, one of the things we put on there was like watch Frozen 2 because we still haven't watched Frozen 2 somehow and we both love Frozen. <laughs> if you can't tell, I'm doing pediatrics. Uh, <laughs> so that's an example. Like go walk around Lake. We really love to walk around. Literally writing those things down so that you have a place to look to have planned spontaneity when you're not sure what to do. I like it. Yeah, it's a good way to keep things moving, keep things close, just continue to develop those personal bonds because that's, in the end, it's going to be much more important because if you're suffering yourself, if you don't have those social supports and you start struggling as a physician, well, you're not going to deliver the best patient care either. So it's all well-rounded. And I think it's very important to continue doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And something else that a lot of early physicians, well, let's say from the medical student aspect, you go into residency and generally speaking, a lot of students will have extracurriculars, whether that be hobbies or sports or volunteerism or something like that. And as a resident, you're just so busy. Is there even really an ability to do this? And you might have some personal thoughts on this since you've also been, you know, helping out with the book series from Read This Before Medical School and then the series we've been working on since then. So that's technically an extracurricular. How do you navigate just the complexity of your schedule? Probably one of the hardest things about being a resident is just really not having control over your schedule and having an imposed schedule upon you take up so much of your time. I think that that was one of the hardest things for me, especially, you know, coming out of fourth year where you're in seventh heaven, basically, like you just go see patients is what you want to do. And then you go home and you don't have a ton of responsibility outside of that. There's a lot less like pressure on you in that setting. So I think it's kind of coming back to the same answer of you just need to diligently schedule. You just need to set aside the time to identify your priorities and then set aside the time in your schedule, no matter how limited that is, even if it's 10 minutes 
to do things that line up with your priorities. And so for me, like, I was really interested in producing these books that we've put out there. So I spent my, you know, limited free time doing this. You know, I, I also understand that that will, you know, pay dividends in the future. I also like didn't, you know, sacrifice the time for like the most important priorities that I have, which are, you know, my family. Yeah. Sounds like scheduling, organization, self-sacrifice, but not to the point that you're giving up part of you is very important. Yeah, totally. All right. We have so many different topics to cover in this one, and I'm hoping not to make it a four-parter here just to not take up too much of your time. So I'm going to toss some random topics at you and you just go for it. All right. So first one is going to be personal time, self-care. Like, How do you manage that during this period of time? So for me, personal time looks like usually waking up like an hour or so before work to make sure that I you know, sit down and read something that is interesting to me, whether it's like a blog that I like or listen to a podcast that I'm interested in and to be able to go into work with a good happy mindset, a mindset of, you know, I've received some of the nourishment that I need to keep me going kind of thing. After work, I always try and do some kind of exercise for, you know, 30, 40 minutes or so. And do I exercise seven days a week? No, I wish I did, but I try to do that every day. And then, you know, sit down and have dinner with my wife, assuming that I'm not on a night shift kind of thing. And those are as boring as it sounds like reading and exercise and hanging out with my wife. Those are the things that make me happy. No, that's perfect. It's like you have the social, you have the physical, you have the cognitive all wrapped into this self-care aspect. And a lot of people like to meditate or exercise, read, whatever it might be, maybe just take a walk in the park, whatever it is for the individual, like make sure to have that time there and schedule that time because sometimes we forget to do so. And if we don't schedule it, then we get preoccupied with mundane tasks and kind of let other things slide. Thankfully, you know, in residency, you do have like the 80 hour work week limit and my program, thank God, actually adheres to to those limits. So, you know, we, even <laughs> though you're working 80 hours a week, like I am still able to get at least seven hours of sleep every night. I fall asleep relatively early, but I'm able to get seven hours of sleep every night. Yeah, if you've had a full day, it's easier to sleep soundly through those couple hours too, as opposed to maybe sleeping 10 hours, but waking up all the time because you didn't put your body or mind through enough action that day and you're just kind of tossing and turning. Yeah, to me, those are the cornerstones of happiness and you know, doing something that I feel like is productive. So for me, it's like these outside projects that like you and I are working on. Sounds good. All right. Extended family. A lot of people have questions about, you know, what if your friend has a birthday or a wedding or something like that while you're in residency? Can you get away for that? How does that work? Yeah. So in general, you are going to have some time off for like vacations during residency. You know, not all events take place within your vacation schedule, right? Like weddings don't always take place when you're on vacation kind of thing. It's not like you're working seven days a week as well. Like for the most part, most residents work about six days a week, pretty typical. And then maybe once or twice a month, you'll have two days off in the weekend. 
So, you know, if you want to go to a wedding that's on the weekend, you just trade a weekend shift with somebody and that's it. Got it. And I know we discussed a little bit about education in the last episode for intern year in particular and using like the intern boot camp. But I mean, there's continuous education that has to go on. There's CMEs, there's more board exams, which, you know, we covered some of this in the last episode in part two. But how do you kind of continue to educate yourself and fit all of these different schedules in and just keep up with your CME and all those other aspects that residents have to start thinking about? Realistically, like, the amount of time that I spend doing like dedicated learning each day is maybe 30 to 60 minutes. And then beyond that, you know, when you're at your job, you're really learning all the time at your job. And so you're able to pick up on a lot of the, you know, things that you need to be learning about while you're at work. So you're kind of doing double duty there. Gotcha. This one's going to be a little difficult, I'm sure, but. I mean, especially in the times that we're at, there's just so much polarization, we'll say. Socially, politically, you might have colleagues that have different views than you. You might have patients that have different views with you, and they just want to start a conversation about whatever their political view is, and you might disagree with it. What is a good way to kind of approach those social topics? Yeah, so... It depends on the scenario. So like, for example, if there's a... For me, it would be a parent starting that conversation, not necessarily a patient. But if there's like a parent who wants to talk about anti-vax, <laughs> I mean, with anti-vax, like you kind of need to address that problem. You can't just like smile and nod to anti-vaxxer stuff. But with like, you know, more political types of stuff, I usually just smile and nod and just wait for the encounter to end. Like, I find that engaging just wastes time. And, you know, you're not going to be able to change anybody's position. It's unlikely that they're going to change your position in a professional interaction like that. And so I find that smiling and nodding tends to work just fine. As far as, like, specifically, like, the anti-vax issue, depending on how much time you have, you can try and get a sense of where they're coming from, try and figure out what their specific concern is. And just reassure them that, like, we both want the same thing for your child. We want your child to grow up happy and healthy. We would never want anything bad to happen to your child. And then once you realize that you have some common ground to build on, then you can start discussing from there. You can address specific concerns. Also, just recognize that there are some people that you're just not going to change their opinion. Like, no matter how much you want to argue with them, you're not going to change their opinion. If you're interested in learning more about that, I would check out some of the work that's done by like Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, other organizations like that that teach about scientific skepticism and the art of persuasion. Sounds good. I was going to ask for a recommendation there because that's definitely something every pediatrician is going to have to deal with. So having some resources there to check out is definitely a good thing. Maybe we can link that in the show notes as well. Also a good blog. It's kind of done by the same group, but as science-based medicine blog addresses a lot of those kinds of issues, things like healing magnets and crystals and a lot of the alternative stuff that just has zero plausibility to it. When you really like spend the time to systematically break down the idea, you really do 
come away better. I, you know, you know, I come away as a more critical thinker and as someone who can more confidently address BS in the future. I need to send some of these resources to a couple of friends that I have because we're constantly having <laughs> discussions about this, which shouldn't be a discussion. But <laughs> yeah. All right. Good to know. We have some resources here we can link in the show notes too. Clinical preceptors are busy professionals as is, and those wishing to give back to the academic community can be overburdened by scheduling and paperwork. With the Find a Rotation platform, physicians looking to precept students can register for their free account, control calendar availabilities, set preferences, and be done. Our system automates and simplifies much of the process. Register for your free account now by visiting findarotation.com for more information. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. All right. So the last one in this particular section before we get into finances, because that's a huge thing. There's so much going on with, with loans, the living situations, the insurance that everyone has to worry about. But for this particular section, I did want to ask one more question that has to do with side gigs. And I know you discussed a little bit with, you know, the work that we've done together with podcasting, with authoring books for medical education. But how do you even like fit that into your schedule? Do you have to block it off ahead of time or what is your process? So the only time that I would recommend doing a side gig (laughs) when you're working a job that, you know, is has you working 80 hours a week is when you are truly, truly through the moon passionate about that side gig, right? Like you should not be wasting your precious time on some job that you don't actually care about just to make a few extra bucks in residency. That's not a winning solution for anybody. So something that I am really, really passionate about, truly passionate about, is teaching and working one-on-one with medical students, helping them to get a better grasp on the material that they're studying and and helping them to master some of the fundamentals of medicine. So consequently, I do carve out an hour or two of each week to spend time with students doing tutoring. I work with a pretty cool company called Med School Coach. I love that. I can vouch for your tutoring because you've definitely taught me quite a few things that should have been so obvious, but just wasn't put in a light that I could understand during medical school. And it's like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I'll just state that right now. Great tutor. (laughs) Definitely use your services if any of the audience members need that. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thank you. (laughs) All right. So this last section of part three here is really going to focus on finances because there's so much to consider as a new resident. I mean, you're moving to a new place. You're moving to a new state generally, and we kind of covered the rent versus buying aspect a little bit in the last episode. And, you know, we mentioned White Coat Investors are a great resource for that. They have a lot of podcasts about it. They have the book about it. It can get a lot of information specifically about that. But how about the biggest financial burden, which is really the student loans? So number one, I I will say I am not in any position to give financial advice, not even close. So please don't consider this to be financial advice. This is for entertainment purposes, (laughs) a strange entertainment, but that's what I'm calling it. In general, I would recommend learning about your student loans 
really understanding number one, what kind of loans do you have? Like, are they through the government, like Grad Plus or Stafford loans, or are they private loans that you obtain through a different party? That's number one. And then number two is like, how are you going to pay off these loans? There's a lot of different avenues that people take. Some people, rather than you know, paying them off through, you know, just paying dollars into the system after you start earning money. Some people will pay with time, right? So they'll go the military route. Some people even do like the HPSP scholarship type of thing where um, you actually get a stipend to go to medical school and then you end up paying with time later. I didn't take that route because I wasn't super passionate about, you know, being a military service member. And I would only go down that route if that's what your passion is. And any military member who's done that program will tell you the same thing. Like only do this if you're truly interested in joining the military. And then you need to think about other alternatives if you're not going to do that, right? Which most people don't. One alternative, if you have federal student loans, you can work in like a 501c3 qualified program. And that's just a line in the tax code. That's like a nonprofit tax status. So if you work for one of these nonprofit tax status organizations, you can eventually get your um, loans forgiven through the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. These are only federal loans um, that, that you can do that for, where basically you end up giving like, I think it's like 120 payments or basically 10 years worth of payments into the PSLF system and then they end up forgiving the rest of the balance of the loan that's one option the other option is you know to just pay them down over time for example like if you don't work for a 501c3 then you just end up paying them down over time and what most people do is if they choose to not work for 501c3 then they'll refinance their loans at a more advantageous rate um, so that they're not paying as much interest each month and pay off their loans over whatever period of time they choose to pay them off. If you're going to go down the PSLF route, then you can't do that. You need to keep your loans within the government system, which means that you're not refinancing them in the sense that someone else is assuming the burden of the loan and charging you a different interest rate than the government was. I think the PSLF loans are very difficult to work because most people just, they're not going to stay in the same, I don't want to say mundane, but, you know, low paying or nonprofit job to the hours required because I think it's like 25 an hour or a week or something like that long enough for the whole 10 years. So then they end up doing it for a few years and then they end up having to pay the whole loan back when they get a better job opportunity somewhere else. So that's something to consider. Anyone in the audience that listens to the Prospective Doctor podcast, you can search an episode that I did on there with a student loan planner. And they have a really good podcast too, if you just want free advice. That's one of the services that I've come into contact with that seems to be very on the board and very useful for this type of thing. They can help you work out the differences there. And you know, your student loans are often, when you're getting private loans especially, they're going to be anywhere from 6 to 9%. Well, that's more than a mortgage. Would you want to pay off your mortgage bit by bit, or do you want to pay it off ahead of time? Put that extra thousand dollars or whatever down every payment and then get that rid of sooner because you're just getting really, your debt is just increasing so much from the interest rate every month that a lot of students actually 
end up further in debt if they just make the minimal payment. So it's definitely something to consider. Find a financial planner, listen to the white coat investor, listen to student loan planner, get some good advice there. Yeah, it's a complicated topic. Yeah, and I, I would also vouch for Travis Hornsby at a student loan planner. He's excellent. He knows exactly what he's talking about with this stuff. Yeah, I would take his advice over mine. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So another one is just where you go into residency really changes your financial aspect because there are different living situations. There are different taxes for every state. And that's not something a lot of students really think about. A lot of students that I've talked to, like their goal as a pre-med was to find a rotation and a residency in California. But if you take into consideration all the other living expenses and taxes, that's kind of a huge burden. I don't know if I would honestly consider taxes all that much in your decision of where to go to residency. For the most part, most people are just trying to keep their head above water financially when they're in residency, right? Especially if you're single and, you know, this is the, your only source of income, right? It, it is a livable wage. Like they make sure that whatever city you're in, it's, it's a livable wage that you're working on, but like you shouldn't be like going and buying new Jordans, that kind of thing. You're living basically a, a student lifestyle as a resident, but that's really the expectation for most residents is that you're not like going to be, you know, massively increasing your net worth during residency. Really what you're investing in is your human capital, right? You're investing in your knowledge base as a professional. If it were me, I would not put that much consideration in, you know, what are the taxes like in this state? That would be very, very low on my priority list when choosing a residency program. I would choose the program that I think is going to give me the best training and where I think I will, where I would fit in the best. The financial considerations, I, I would put a lot lower. Yeah, I mean, if you want to think about it, you certainly can. Texas has no state taxes, which is nice, or no state income tax, I should say. But their property taxes are higher. So if you want to buy a place in Texas, you got to think about that. I wouldn't put as much emphasis on. Um, That's a fair point. Yeah, the white coat investor always says, like, as an attending, live like a resident. I would take that a step further. As a resident, live like a medical student. Just be very, very cautious with your finances. Don't go buy anything extravagant. Make sure you have a lot in your savings and make sure that, you know, when hard times hit, as, you know, they definitely have during COVID for a lot of people, a lot of people were not saving before that. That's a huge thing to consider. I suppose the next thing is, really the insurance aspect that's complicated i know and yes we're going to keep referencing the white coat investor because it's topics that they use but how did you approach your your disability insurance and other just medical insurances that you need to kind of have as a resident as far as insurances go so you should be thinking about life insurance disability insurance and maybe umbrella insurance if you own a home as well so disability insurance. So disability insurance is basically a system where you pay a little bit of money each month and to cover your future income. So let's say you become disabled and you are no longer able to work as a physician. You need to have some kind of income coming in and that's what disability insurance does. And then life insurance is for the very unfortunate situation where if you die and someone depends on you, life insurance would pay out a certain amount of money to 
that beneficiary of the policy. Most residents don't really get disability insurance, but disability insurance is, for most people, better to get when you're younger and healthier. In general, insurance is is better to get when you're younger and healthier. You get better rates on the monthly payments for that insurance. And it's something that you really should take seriously as a resident because let's say, God forbid, you got hurt during your training and are no longer able to do your job. Like how in the world are you going to support yourself? That's the benefit of disability insurance is providing you with that assurance that you will have monthly income if something, God forbid, happens and you're no longer able to do your job. Fair enough. Yeah, definitely things that we don't consider in medical school. And you do definitely want to consider these, but we're not going to be the experts on that. So something to look into. We'll just leave it at that. Well, how about your transportation aspect? Because you said you got lucky and you found a residence pretty close to your hospital, but that might not be the situation for a lot of new residents. They might be quite far away. There might be a huge transportation issue there, whether it be through their own personal cars or through taking the bus system, public transportation. What are some boundaries there to consider? One, I, I would think about the city that you live in, right? So for example, probably New York City, right? New York City has a pretty decent subway system that would be able to get you to work on time if you lived near a subway station, right? Or DC as well has a pretty decent metro system that uh, that can get you to work on time. But for the most part, most residents are, are just going to have a personal car if they don't live within walking distance or whatever of, uh, of the hospital um, that would take them to work. So it's just a matter of, you know, taking care of your car, making sure that you change the oil, making sure that you get, get it inspected. Don't let your insurance lap. Have a spare tire. You know, all of the, yeah, have, have a spare tire, all, all of that kind of stuff. There's no magic to it, but you, for the, really the rest of your life, or at least the rest of your life where you have patients depending on you, it's really important for you to have reliable transportation. So if you do own a car, make sure that you take care of it well. Yeah, have a backup plan too, because that's just not the stress that you really want to deal with at that point in time. All right, we're coming to the end here. I think we only have really two more topics to discuss. And the first one's going to be pretty general. What tips do you have to save money as a resident? Save money as a resident. One tip that I have in general would be like track your expenses. Figure out how much you actually spend each month. And, you know, you don't have to like sit and like enter all of your purchases into Excel. Like there are programs like Mint or you need a budget that link up with your bank account and you can track your expenses that way. But tracking your expenses in general, like one, it helps to lower the amount that you're spending each month when you become more cognizant of of how much you're spending. And two, it helps you to plan a budget for the future. So. That's one thing. And then you can, in general, uh, try and be relatively frugal. I mean, like you probably shouldn't be like buying all organic groceries and then going out to dinner five times a week and going out to drinks. Live like a medical student, like we said earlier. Just live like <laughs> a medical student and you'll eventually get there. But I don't really have like any like specific advice for people about that. 
Well, just keeping track of your expenses is very important because I found out that once I started using a spreadsheet and every month I would write down all my credit card expenses. If you have a lot of credit cards like I do uh, for credit building purposes, I try to use them responsibly and pay them off that same month. But you would be surprised how quickly that adds up because you don't think about it when you pull out the card. And unless you're tracking it, you're probably spending a lot more than you really think. So yeah, just some sort of monitoring system journaling, anything like that is going to help a lot, I'd say. Yeah, totally. And then, all right, cool. So last topic here, because we are getting a little long, is just sort of investing. Is that something you're even considering at this point? Because a lot of physicians, especially if you're listening to like physician podcasts are already attending, so it's different for residents, probably don't have as much excess cash. But depending on your situation, you might have some retirement accounts that you can invest in or stocks or some physicians really like to go into real estate or making purchases for different clinical practice buildings and just all of these different options are out there if you're responsible with your finances. And is that something you're doing or how do you approach that? What I do is, you know, I put the maximum amount that my employer will match up to in the 403B account that we have. So like my employer, if I put 6% in, will match up to 3% of my pre-tax income into my 403b and basically if i choose not to do that then i'm essentially leaving money on the table beyond that i'm not looking to make massive amounts of investments you know again like most residents are really just trying to keep their head above water financially and so you know if you can figure out how to budget in residency if you haven't you know done so already if you can save a little bit into whatever retirement account that they provide for you, especially if your employer matches, then you should do that. Beyond that, I mean, anything else is great, but I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't think that people necessarily need to do that. Um, it, I mean, if you choose to buy a house, like through a physician home mortgage or something like that, or if you, you know, have the down payment for the house, that's great too. But a physician home mortgage can usually help people who aren't able to afford a down payment. Then one strategy could be like renting out a room of that house, right? And that helps you to at least cover a lot of the mortgage payment that you would be making each month. So those are all strategies. Yeah. And if you don't match, like you said, it's leaving money on the table. So you can consider that whether it be a 10% match or a 30% match or whatever it is, add that to your current salary. And consider how much more you're being paid per hour or per, you know, salary increment, I suppose. And that's a lot of potential money that you're leaving on the table if you're not taking advantage of that. So there's absolutely no reason to not take advantage of that. If you don't know, like, which specific investments you want to put your money into and you don't feel comfortable choosing them, then most of the time the human resources department can provide you with contact information for a financial advisor. You could also, you know, take some time out of your fourth year to learn a little bit more about, uh, about finances and, you know, be able to make those decisions more confidently. Another, so we've mentioned White Coat Investor uh, quite a bit. Another uh, really good resource that I would recommend is this podcast called Financial Residency. And the reason that I would recommend it is people will like call in also to kind of describe their own personal 
financial situations. And you get to see like a bunch of different case studies as well, which can be helpful. So you're not just using like abstract examples. Like you, you can really like get into the nitty gritty with that program. Yeah, totally agree. And a lot of these physician finance podcasts, I should say, do something similar. And there's a lot of them out there. You can search them. There's a bunch. They are great sources for this. We need to look forward and definitely not spend too much now, kind of look towards the future because the residency is only a couple of years. Yes, we've sacrificed a lot at this point, but if you want to make sure you're going to be comfortable in your living situation later on, something to at least start considering early on. Well, all right, perfect. I think we have covered so much in the past three episodes and there's so much value here for all the audience. So I'm really happy to have you on again. And I just want to say thank you again, Greg Rodden. And where can the audience find you? They can find me in Austin, Texas. As far as social media goes, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, but that's about it. I don't really do. Yeah, you're pretty terrible with social media. I yeah, have to say. As yeah, a I'm... co-author to our book, you're definitely slacking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not not too into social media. But if people want to hit me up, they can also email me at medschoolfiz at gmail.com if they have any specific questions like that. But yeah, thank you so much for having me on again, Chase. I really appreciate it. I love getting to hang out with you. You're a great guy and looking forward to the next time. Oh, you're so sweet. And we'll put your tutoring link as well, since I know we mentioned it on the past two episodes, but just in case someone's listening here, Greg Rodden also does tutoring for medical students through Medical Coach, and we'll add that link into the show notes. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by MedSchool Coach. To access MedSchool Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.